Let's get ready to roll. Lead Like a Lady features amazing women at the top of their game who know what it's like to be the only woman in the room. They're here to share their stories, inspire greatness, and provide advice to all the women coming up behind them. Now, here's your host, Army veteran and retired FBI assistant special agent in charge, Gina L. Osborne. Welcome to Season 2 of Lead Like a Lady. I'm your host, Gina L. Osborne, leadership consultant and international speaker. We have so many great guests this season, and I can't wait to share them with you. But before I do that, I have a free gift for you being such a loyal listener. I wrote an ebook called Five Lessons to Navigate Male-Dominated Workplaces. If you go to my website, GinaLOsborne.com, go to the ebook section, and it is yours as my appreciation for spending time with me on the show. Today I have Nell Scoville, who co-authored the international best-selling book, Lean In with Sheryl Sandberg. She's also a television and magazine writer, a director, and a producer. She's had a lot of firsts when she found herself the only woman in the room, to include being one of the first women to write on The David Letterman Show and The Simpsons. She also created the 90s series, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and wrote her memoir in 2018, Just the Funny Parts, and a few hard truths about sneaking into the Hollywood Boys Club. Now sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired. Welcome to the show, Nell. Oh, thanks for having me. Nell, I'm dying to ask you, what is it like being the only woman in the room, more often than not, throughout your entire Hollywood career that spanned over three decades? Oh, well, I, you've been the only woman in the room. It's, it's, it's a tough thing to both represent all women and be ignored, <laughs> <laughs> even when you're just one person and you represent all. That, that it's, it's hard to really describe what that feels like. <laughs> yes, I just know that I hate being ignored. In fact, that is probably the worst thing you can possibly do to me is ignore me. Oh, same here. Although Hollywood is very hierarchical. Oh, well, you come from the military. So like, yes, hierarchies. And they do find that in hierarchies, you get the most abuse of the people, you know, lower down the, the ladder. So I did work my way up. And I tried very hard when, when I was the showrunner to not repeat the mistakes that had been done to me along the way. You co-wrote the book Lean In, which everyone knows about, unless you've been under a rock for the last, I don't know, eight years or so. Were you surprised at how big Lean In became? I mean, it was a number one international bestseller. Well, Sheryl Sandberg has just been one of the most successful people on the planet. So <laughs> I don't, you know, her ability to knock it out of the park with her first book, um, She's she has knocked it out of the park her entire life. And so I was really grateful to be part of that. I mean, it's it's the book she was writing in her head for 20 years, and I helped her get it on paper that was really gratifying. Uh, she's amazing. 
What resonated with you the most when you were helping her get that down onto paper? So what resonated the most for me was when we would give advice, Cheryl would give advice, and it was what I'd been doing my entire career. And then what was awful was to learn like there were things I'd been negotiating incorrectly my entire career. So that was that was pretty depressing to learn. <laughs> but then also when you would learn about a study. So here's one of my favorite studies. It's called the favor penalty. When women are asked to do favors at work, like, could you organize this birthday party? Could you stay late and make sure the scripts get collated correctly? Women are expected to say yes, because we're communal and we're maternal. So we want to help, right? So if you say yes, you don't get any benefits for doing the favor. But if you say no, you actually get punished if you're a woman. Because what? You're, you're supposed to want to do this, and now you're saying no? Men, on the other hand, when they're asked to do a favor and they do it, they receive a benefit. It helps them towards promotion. It helps them add bonus time. And if they say no, well, um, he's very busy, so we can't expect him to do the favor. So there's no penalty, which means a woman who says yes is at the same level as a man who says no. Wow. So this was something I had felt my entire career. Like when they would ask me to stay late and do something and I said I couldn't, I would get shit for it. But when a man said like, oh, I have to go pick up my kid at school, everyone would be like, you're such a good dad. Right. <laughs> right. And so there are those moments when you go, it's not me. It's our culture. Whenever there would be any sort of party, cake cutting, anything like that, when I was the boss, I would always make sure that I picked up that knife and I cut that cake because I didn't want anybody else to feel that they needed to step up and do that. Yeah, I, I remember once I was very uh, at a very upper level and they asked me to take notes <gasps> on the whiteboard. <laughs> I was just so like... Uh, that's the, the, you know, the PA is not here. Nell, can you do it? And it's like, and you have to. And I always hate it because it's like, now everyone's staring at my ass. <laughs> <laughs> you're just standing at that board. But it also, it makes it hard to pitch if you're writing down what others have said. Right, right. <laughs> I think that's the huge difference between Hollywood and the federal government where I come from, that would have been a giant no thank you. In the law enforcement environment, you learn early on that you have to set boundaries or else you willing to be a team player will easily slip into you being taken advantage of. But I understand other industries are different. You're penalized for saying no. A man can just go, oh, my handwriting's terrible. And they go, okay. <laughs> I have a friend that I worked with who would take those types of situations and turn them into a way for her to control the narrative. So if she were invited to come up and start writing on the board, the next thing you know, she'd be leading the meeting and task people with what they need to do to pretty much accomplish what she was trying to put out there. But in your industry and other industries where you can get 
fired for not going along with the program. What do you suggest people do in that type of a situation? Well, I think if it happens consistently, then that's when you go into your boss's office and you say, I'm not sure you realize this, but I get picked a lot to do X and I'm happy to do it my fair share, but it seems like I'm doing more than that. And the, the other thing you, you could do is you could grab an ally in the room and say, this is happening. Next time, could you, if he chooses me, could you say something like, you know, Nell did it the last time. I'll do it this time. Right, right. Another thing Lenin was famous for was taking your seat at the table. That was a powerful lesson for people who choose to sit around the table in the chairs at the wall as opposed to actually taking a seat at the table and being a prominent figure during a meeting. Well, what I love about that is it works both literally and figuratively, right? I mean, we figuratively don't sit at the table where decisions are made and have our voices heard. But we also literally, and I did this too when I started, I tell the story in my book, Just the Funny Parts, about working at Newhart, the sitcom on its last season. And you know, my name's on the script and I go sit around the periphery with all the PAs because no one called me over and said, no, the writer sits at the table now. I think that's the problem. Sometimes people wait to be invited before they feel like they deserve to be there. Oh, I, I wanted desperately for someone to call me over, but I, I worried that if I, you worry about overstepping or maybe you don't, but I, I worried, especially when I was younger about overstepping because there is a price to pay for that. So you know, sometimes even the art of war says sometimes you have to get small, <laughs> you know, to get what you want. And so I think instinctively, there were times when I made myself small. And I'm pretty small to begin with. I'm five feet. <laughs> but you became so wildly successful working on The Simpsons, being a writer on Late Night with David Letterman when there weren't any other female writers on the show, NCIS, Murphy Brown. You must, you've done, obviously done something so well to get you to those places. Looking back, would you change anything? Oh, um, I would spend a lot less time complaining in parking garages. <laughs> <laughs> about about bosses and 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 situations that were out of my control. Yeah. So I that would be one thing. That's a good one. Um, Who would you be complaining and, to? Oh, other writers. But you know, you have to sort of wind down and vent and when you're dealing with comedy, it can get really personal and frustrating in a way that you know, there's a saying in tech code wins, which just means the best code wins. Like if, if you have two ideas, go write the code and the code wins. It's hard to find a more subjective business than comedy writing or, or TV writing. And so that can make it very frustrating. And then how do you deal with frustration that builds up during the day? Well, 
you stand in a parking garage for an additional half an hour and let it out. (laughs) So if you would have changed that, how would you have changed it? Oh, I would just have gotten in my car and gone home and enjoyed that time (laughs) with my family. (laughs) So you talked about your husband and in, in, in the Lean In book, you talk about making your partner a real partner. What does that mean to you? Well, it means that all the studies show that men do not do 50% of the child care and house care. And that's the, you know, the second shift is a woman does her day job and then she comes home and her second shift is is being the mom and taking care of the house and taking care of the uh, medical appointments and the the parent-teacher conferences. and, And so you really need to make your partner a real partner. Now, we flipped that. My my husband was actually the stay-at-home parent. He's an architect. He's great with kids. And we just agreed that I would keep working in television and, and he would raise our two sons. So I was very lucky. <laughs> um, that's It's unusual. In fact, one of our sons was a freshman in college and he was stopped by by another student who was doing some survey for like Psych One. And they said, asked who raised you at home, your mother or your father? And he said, my father. And the woman said, oh, my God, you're the first person to answer that. And he said to us, I never knew it was weird. <laughs> anyway, so make your partner a real partner just means like really divide up the the child care and the home care. Where do you think, I mean, especially in this day and age, why do you think it continues that women, when they have children, they have to pull that second shift alone? It's, it's the culture. I mean, yeah, I also think you have to trust. I mean, I, I trusted my husband and that doesn't always happen. You can't have authority and not have control. So if you're giving up authority, you also have to give up control. And I do think that's a mistake. We talk about this in Lean In, that you know, if you want your husband to change diapers, then don't criticize the way he does it. Or wash the floor or put the dishes in the dishwasher or any of that. Right. And also, maybe if it's the first time he's done it, he's not going to do it quite right. Let him, let him do it for a year and then see how, how well he does it. Right. So I think that's part of it is trust and relinquishing control. And I think you also have to, as a woman, let go of your own cultural expectations. You know, Penn Jillette once said to me, Nell, you're a terrible mother, but you're the world's best father. <laughs> and what he meant is, you know, as for someone who was working really hard, I still, I, got, I made hot breakfast for my kids every morning. You know, I would read to them every night when I was home. I loved reading to my kids at bedtime. You know, I definitely spent more time with my kids. You know, I didn't golf on the weekends. But I also had to acknowledge I was the parent who, when our kids were in a play, I would go one night. Colin, my husband, would go all three nights. And, you know, you can't be jealous of that. And you can't be competitive about that. It's like, that's what he wanted to do. <laughs> I, and what he felt he needed to do. And I did what I felt like I needed to do. And we never made each other feel guilty about that stuff. 
Yeah. Would you have changed anything about that looking back? Well, I would have spent less time venting in parking garages and spent those (laughs) half hours with my family. It's the same answer. (laughs) Right. (laughs) When you look back on your career, are you as in impressed with it as other people are? Because I'm wildly impressed with all of the things that you've done. In fact, I read a quote where Penn Gillette says that you're one of the funniest people alive. Oh, Penn introduced me to my husband oh. and then he married us <laughs> in our backyard. He's such a good friend and such a funny man that, yes, that kind of floored me. You know, I it, I struggled and I did used to keep a list of people who thought I was funny. So if I was in a job where I felt people were not listening to me and I wasn't getting much in, I could pull out my list and Penn was definitely on it and Bob Newhart was on it and (laughs) David Letterman was on it. So it was a pretty good list to remind myself that, you know, I do think you need to take the long view of it. Um, But look, you know, I, I directed two movies. I really, really in my late thirties wanted to move into directing and I couldn't make it happen. So am I impressed? I, I mean, I, I still feel sadness that I would make a movie. It would be well-received. I go in to meet with my agents, and they would just say, no, it's really hard to do. The first one's the easy one. I was like, no, you told me the first one was the hard one. <laughs> <laughs> you can't now say the second one is the hard one. Wow. You know, they made more money off me writing than directing. And so one of my regrets, we were talking about regrets earlier, is that I will always wonder if at a certain point I had said, I'm not going to do any more writing, I'm just going to direct, whether that would have shifted their thinking. But I was the breadwinner for our family, so I really couldn't say something like that. I mean, my husband would have been fine with it, but I would have felt badly. I wouldn't feel too bad because in addition to your TV writing, you also have written incredibly poignant articles in major magazines and even some speeches for President Obama. I didn't write speeches. I wrote jokes. (laughs) I wish I wrote speeches. Yeah, I did get to write for five of the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And it was my idea for him to drop the mic at the end, which became an iconic gif. Um, although it's pretty obvious that it, I, I can't claim it was the most creative pitch on the planet. But it, it worked. It definitely worked. That's for sure. Well, he had great comedic timing. Yes. He had like Johnny Carson time. Yeah. No, he definitely, he, he's good at everything speaking. He is really, really good at amazingly. At just yes. <laughs> incredibly good. And, and uh, Michelle Obama as well. I mean, they're just gifted when it comes to communication. They are. I've been listening to the Springsteen Obama podcast mm-hmm. and it cracks me up because they both like to talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They just did something on that on uh, Saturday Night Live a couple weeks ago. Oh, did they? Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, they had uh, they had them both on uh, Weekend Update. Well, not them both. They had uh, comedians playing them on Weekend Update, and it was pretty funny. Oh, I'll check that out. What lights you up when it comes to comedy? What is it that just keeps you just passionate about it? 
the surprise. I think it's one of the reasons I got into mystery writing is that there are some similarities between writing a mystery and writing a joke and how you're leading the audience or misleading the audience in the case often of a mystery. I just, I like being surprised. I really liked um, like Search Party. Like that was a show I didn't know where they were going. I thought the characters and the acting were superb. You know, I'm less likely to watch a more traditional sitcom at this point because I sort of see where where everything's heading. Right, right. But um, I mean, but comedy is, do you know when you land on that, that joke? I mean, do you have a bunch of different punchlines and then you have to go back and forth as to what the best punchline? I mean, how do you write comedy? Well, the best comedy comes from character. It's why it was easy to write for President Obama because he's, I always said he's a sitcom character. He was leader of the free world who lived with his wife, two daughters and his mother-in-law. Like, if that's not a sitcom, I don't know what is. <laughs> but uh, so it, it, it comes from the circumstances. It comes from shared culture, which is why I think we've gotten more polarized in our comedy between you know, the liberals and conservatives. Um, it's because we don't have a shared idea of, of the truth anymore. So is there anything we didn't touch on that you think that we should talk about? I just want to hear more about the FBI. So I feel like you have a way more interesting career history than I do. So, Well, you showed a lot more restraint than I did. I had impulse control issues and would tell people to pound sand when they asked me to take notes on the whiteboard. <laughs> but do you, think it, do you think it hurt you, hurt your career? You know, I'm going to say no. Could I have used a little more restraint when speaking my mind? Possibly. Did I make mistakes? Absolutely. But that's okay. I have a presentation I do for women called Leading Unapologetically. And I was telling one of my male police chief friends about it. And he said, Leading Unapologetically? What's that? And I said, exactly. As women, we shouldn't have to fear that being assertive or decisive or ambitious is going to make people uncomfortable. Yeah. Just be the boss. Oh, no, that's, that's the hope of Lean In is that women will become bosses and then make things better for women underneath. And, and it will become, you know, just a spiral of, of success. Do you see that happening now? Yes, but uh, I'm waiting for it to be sustained, you know, because we've had moments in our culture where, you know, for a while, Tina Fey was the, you know, the biggest name in comedy and, you know, Barack Obama was president. That, that didn't end sexism or racism. So what do we have to do as women every day to be heard and not be marginalized? I mean, what, what is it that, how do we contribute every day just from sitting where we're sitting right now? Oh, well, I mean, I wouldn't tell another woman what to do. Um, <laughs> but I, I think, um, you know, not giving up, right? That's the, 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 the point of Lean In was just giving women permission to be ambitious. I actually think ambition is hardwired. I see it in my kids, like one is way more competitive than the other. 
you know, I'm more competitive than my husband. Um, and giving people permission to be their true selves. So if you're a guy and you're not competitive and you want to stay home with the kids, that's beautiful. And if you're a woman and you want to go run with the thoroughbreds at work, that's beautiful too. Um, and so just knowing, not holding yourself back is always the advice. I think that's great advice. And also just having tolerance, not only for the people around us, but having tolerance for ourselves as well and allowing ourselves to be who we are instead of trying to be somebody that we're not. Yeah. Although some days it would be nice to be someone else. Who, who <laughs> would you be? <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. I definitely know that feeling. <laughs> well, now, thank you so much for being on the show. This was so enlightening and I really enjoyed you being a guest. Well, we have now talked, I think, three times, and every time I enjoy you more. So let's keep talking. Thank you for joining us on Lead Like a Lady. If you enjoyed this episode and are feeling inspired, please subscribe, rate, and review it on your favorite listening platform. Lead Like a Lady with Gina L. Osborne is produced and edited by Lisa Osborne. Theme music is Leading Lady by retired IRS criminal investigation attache Clarissa Balmaceda featuring Alex Castillo. Find us on social media through GinaLOsborne.com slash Lead Like a Lady. And don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Lead Like a Lady with Gina L. Osborne wherever you get your podcasts. 